From the Blinks Labs headquarters in Berlin, Germany, this is the Blinkist Podcast. If you're new to the Blinkist Podcast, the idea is we're going deeper into the nonfiction book world. We're getting into the heads of the inspiring, the genius people who actually write those books. New tagline, we're taking big ideas and making them personal. I'm the producer, Ben, and today in the podcast, we have Cal Newport, really excited about this. Um, Newport is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown, but most of us know him as an author of five excellent books, each of which takes a unique view on how to study better, find a career better, or uh, in his new book, Deep Work, just work better. I also want to give a, a shout out to his blog, Study Hacks, because that was like critical for me when I was in school and is now full of examples and tips of how people manage to hunker down and like make cool stuff. The definition of deep work in his book is professional activities performed in a state of distraction-free concentration that push your cognitive capabilities to their limit. These efforts create new value, improve your skill, and are hard to replicate. In other words, it's doing hard things, like things that push your mental capacity, distraction-free, in a state of focus. And he argues that it's basically the most important thing now in our society to be able to do. So in this interview, you'll hear Cal and I get into why he thinks we've become the cognitive equivalent of couch potatoes. And he talks a little bit about why The Economist called his called the idea of deep work like the number one most important app for knowledge workers in the knowledge economy. If you like what you hear today, please do head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It's very sweet of you, and it also um, helps us out. So thanks. All right, let's roll the tape. Here's me and Cal Newport. Catch you guys in the outro. So thanks for um, taking the time to do this. Sure. The thing that I that I want to talk about instead of like the whole concept of deep work is if you were making a curriculum for say 12 to 15 year olds, what would you include so that they could learn deep work? Like I'm thinking, would you imagine like being able to teach people how to handle email, like make it so entrenched the way we learn how to treat people? You know, we learn like, don't hit your classmate, Timmy. Well, I think deep work should be understood as a tier one skill. So, you know, just the same way that we think the ability to write is a tier one skill. So let's teach people this, how to do this well, or the ability to do basic mathematics or to program a computer, that these are tier one skills and, and we're taught them and we're taught they're important and we go through a lot of work to cultivate their ability. You know, I wish, you know, for my own experience and really for anyone's experience, that deep work, this ability to focus very intensely is taught with that same level of importance, that this ability is going to be incredibly beneficial. But as it stands now, we, for the most part, don't talk about it in the educational system. Right. It's almost like we talk more about how to cram in what you call shallow work. Yeah. I mean, this is what you get exposed to uh, shallow work, especially once you get into the, the working world, where it's how quick are you responding? Are you on top of things? Do you have a lot of fires in the iron? I think in school, there's a lot of effort on uh, what you want to do. Hey, you can be mm -hmm. what you want. Uh, you should believe in yourself. You should you should have uh, confidence, self-confidence, but not nearly enough effort on what's the reality of how you get there and what skills you have to cultivate. And what does it feel like the, the, the hard work of the intense focus of the cultivating skill over time? We don't really have a good vocabulary for that. So it really sets a lot of people up for failure down the line. What specific things like could we teach people? I mean, your book is obviously full. I mean, the whole second half of the book is full of 
these things. But but I'm if we could take like fifteen year old Cal, what would you show him? Well, the, the ability to focus is trainable, first of all, and that you get used to this notion that, hey, maybe I'm a level one focuser and you're a level five focuser and you're a level 15 focuser. This notion that it's something you can get better and better at. And then second, the better you get at it, the more returns it gives you. This notion of, hey, the better you are at this, the faster you're going to learn things. The better you are at focusing intensely, the more elite level you're going to produce at. You'll produce more. You're going to produce things at a higher level of quality. Just to have that vocabulary surrounding focus that it's something that you you have to train and something you get better at and something that gives you more and more intellectual rewards as you get better at it, I think would have been immensely useful for you know 15-year-old me because these are a lot of things I had to discover on the fly and probably actually had a lot of inefficiency in my trajectory because of that. It, it does feel like there's a lot powerful just in the language, just in the in the idea that like, I mean, I've always had this feeling I'm bad at math and then I just kind of stopped with it. But now I'm kind of teaching myself data and stuff and I'm fine with it. I sit down and I learn it. You know, I've like, I've rebuilt the confidence. Like when I sit down and learn something, I can learn it. But from, I don't know, 13 years old until 22, I was basically like, oh, well, math is just not my thing. Yeah, we're uncomfortable, especially at a young age with discomfort. And the educational system doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it. I think as you get older, and especially as you sort of get more accomplished, you build a comfort with cognitive discomfort. Hey, hard things are hard. It feels hard. Just like if you want to uh, build bigger muscles, you're going to have to lift heavy weights and it's not going to feel comfortable, right? You're exhausting your muscles. It's the same thing with your mind. I find a lot of students are very uncomfortable with that. It's, uh, this isn't, this doesn't make sense. I'm looking at this page in a calculus textbook. I'm looking at this derivation of the chain rule. This doesn't make sense to me immediately. And that discomfort sends people running for the hills, where if we instead had this consistent vocabulary for depth and focus and discomfort being okay, just like athletes have for training, you'd be much more willing as a young person to say, that's fine. Of course I feel discomfort. I'm lifting the heavy cognitive weight. Okay, let me stick with it. And let me break this down. Let me focus just on this part. Well, let me hold on to what's saying here, keep it in my head, reconfigure the variable, see if this can make sense to me, and eventually have that click happen where I'm able to move it to the next level. I mean, there's a there's a deep vocabulary that could underpin the act of concentrating hard on kindly demanding tasks and making progress. And we just don't talk about it. And essentially, those who, through happenstance, get more comfortable with this early tend to be the people who have sort of a, a lot of successes early on in their academic career. Uh, it, I mean, you're kind of hinting at some of the deliberate um, deliberate practice theory um, that, that shows up in the book and that I talked a lot the, in the last two podcasts with. I talked with a boxer and I talked with David Epstein. Do you know his book, The Sports Gene? Sure, and I know David. Oh, that's awesome. And he and then I watched the his MIT debate with Gladwell where they – I, the, the simplified title was like 10,000 hours versus practice or something and um, or versus the sports gene. And I, I actually did write down like a note of if if you believe in this kind of hardware software paradigm that that um, I mean, it, when it comes to deep work, like, do you believe some people do have kind of a deep work hardware that makes them somehow better attuned? And, you know, this, I think the software stuff is clear. Like you just said, you can train it. This focus can be learned. Well, I mean, I like Epstein's hardware software uh, division, you know, he uses that for understanding uh, sports excellence. And I think it applies to a lot of cognitive endeavors. When it comes to the actual cognitive endeavor of deep work, 
I don't know much at all about the hardware component to it, but what I do know is that the software component is uh, incredibly tunable. In other words, you can make massive improvements in your ability to concentrate through practice. So we don't have an Olympic sport around concentration. So <laughs> in some sense, it, it, it's we don't really have the competition that could maybe tease out sort of the hardware, you know, genetic predispositions where get people to world-class focusing and say, okay, these guys are training as hard as possible and this guy's a lot better. He has some sort of built-in genetic gift for uh, focusing. We don't really have competitions in our culture right now that, that could help uncover that in the way we do with, say, sprinting right, right. or, you know, right. throwing a football. So I don't know what role the sort of hardware component plays with focusing, but I'm, I'm very convinced from sort of my firsthand observation that the software component is really mm. large. Uh, if mm. you don't train your ability to focus, you're going to be bad at it. I, I just don't have a lot of examples of people in, in our current age uh, in which the default is to not be focused that are just very comfortable with doing it. But I have tons of examples of people who got much better. Right. And then, and then once you're kind of in, then you're in because it's, you start getting better. And then once you can focus, you can learn more. And when you learn more, you like it, you get better at it. You start doing more. I mean, I, I, I feel like a, like a snowball kind of effect in your book. Um, I mean, you go, you go to like great lengths to kind of defend your defend this thesis that deep work is important but to me it was kind of like once you buy the first premise it all falls down after you know what i mean yeah it, and it is definitely a snowball effect uh, when you go from a completely scattered ability to focus to a reasonable ability to focus you get these early wins and then you say, I like that. And thus I'm getting value out of it. So then you're more comfortable persisting and then you get better, then you get better. You know, it's just like breaking the seal on exercise. Mm -hmm. If you're a complete couch potato, and it's it's really hard, right, to get out there and start doing the initial daily jogging or whatever it is. But then once you're doing that and you've gotten used to that, then it's actually much easier to do sort of ramp up. Okay, now I'm going to increase the mileage now because you're now you're in the habit of it. You're like, okay, I get rewards from doing exercise. And so now instead of just uh, – training for a 5k let me train for the triathlon that's a much smaller mm -hmm. jump than going from i don't do any exercise to you know i'm training for the 5k it's the same thing with focus i mean most people right now especially of a certain age or below live the cognitive equivalent of a couch potato life they <laughs> never go more than five ten minutes without some sort of novel stimuli delivered through their phone or computer and so that jump from that to a world in which you on a regular basis are able to go long periods without distraction and have some comfort with it. That's the big jump. You do that, then you're, you're set. Now you're down the snowballs rolling and you can get better and better. Right. It's, was it on your blog or was it in the book where there's the example of the, uh, was it a Boston consulting group study that they just didn't check email for a day for one day out of the week? Yeah, that was Leslie Perlow's work at a Harvard business school. Uh, and she convinced it was really hard, but she convinced right. the team within Boston consulting group, uh, that everyone would have a day off a full day off from email, any communication. And they were, you know, they were convinced <laughs> that, that, uh, that's the end of this group. Right. Like our clients will rebel. Nothing's going to happen. And only good things happened. <laughs> so there right. was no, the clients thought their service went, was better. Uh, the, the employees were more, you know, relaxed, were, were producing at a higher level. And, you know, every, once they broke that seal, it really helped open things up. And that's something, breaking that seal is something I usually only do by accident, honestly. 
I don't know. Th- this is a kind of a side point, but with emails, like I, I like I get sick, for example, and then I don't check my email because I can't look at the computer. You know what I mean? Or who knows? Like something's broken, and or the internet goes down, or something. And then you like the next day you sign in, or whenever finally you're you're back, and you're like, oh, oh, everything's totally fine. Yeah. Well, you know, I I just interviewed someone uh, who has the the best version of that, <laughs> the best example I've heard of that tale. He was someone who. Um, came into the Obama administration, into uh, the Labor Department, I believe, and they brought him in to run a big group that was working on some particular initiative. And a computer virus hit their computer system. And because oh, it's the government, like, you know, they're really wary right. about this. So I, it was the FBI, whoever, Homeland Security, came in and said, all right, group, uh, we're taking away, we have to take you off the network. <laughs> we're, we're taking you, we're, they took their computers away. And so the, the Homeland Security took away their email for six weeks before they started to get, you know, some email back. And, and so he was telling me, I was like, ah, oh, there's so much that was so bad about it because, you know, the White House and everyone else they were working with still had email. So they were mm-hmm. still, okay, they were still coordinated on email. So they were always, hey, what are we missing, right? Because no one, everyone else still had email. And there were some like difficulties, you know, ah, how do I send this thing to a bunch of people if I can't just send an email and CC? But then mm-hmm. I was, I was pushing this guy a little further. I was like, so you know, during your days, there's no inbox you could check, right? And he's like, that's true. I was like, well, what what happened instead? And it turned out that he spent a lot more time scheduling long meetings with people relevant to what they were doing. He thought about it a little bit further. And he's like, you know, the two major initiatives that we ended up working on my whole time in the White House all came out of that period where, where I didn't have an email inbox. There was nothing to check, nothing to fragment my attention. All I could do was go meet with people and talk with people and think about things. And so it's this interesting example of uh, it takes a computer virus or you're sick or something <laughs> like that to give you a glimpse of how necessary is it that we're, we're completely fragmented. I mean, sure, it's logistically useful, but uh, these inadvertent glimpses of more deep, uninterrupted, focus-filled uh, workplaces, I think are really fascinating. Yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying just so that the listeners can hear. I'm really enjoying the your last really last couple months on the blog have been just full of these stories that are really 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 excellent and supportive somehow. It's like a support group in your comments on your blog of people who are like, "I also did this, nothing broke. Everything's fine. Yeah. Everything's fine." Yeah, I mean because this is this was one of the central paradoxes of deep work is that if it's so valuable, why is it so essentially disdained by current workplace cultures and practices. Mm, if, mm-hmm. if it's so valuable, then why is it that most of the trends that are popular right now in the workplace, uh, constant communication, the move towards instant messaging tools like Slack, open offices, um, these type of moves that are completely antagonistic to deep work, why are these the popular trends? And I find comfort. I find comfort in recognizing that we're really early in the age of knowledge work. And, you know, if you go back hmm. and, and read the histories of the Industrial Revolution, it took a long time <laughs> for us to figure out how to run an industrial age company properly. I mean, you know, now we, we have assembly lines and Six Sigma and, and the Toyota Quality and Lean and all these, all these uh, methodologies. And we're incredibly good right now at right. building things, an industrial factor. It took 150 years before we started getting those ideas right. I mean, we ran factories like really inefficiently for the first hundred years. So it took some time to get comfortable and get comfortable with inconvenience. And eventually we got the assembly line, which was, you know, 10 times more efficient. That's what's happening in knowledge work. We're in the early days, you know, so we're still a little bit spooked about 
what would it mean to run a knowledge work organization where we actually had to step back and say, what are you producing for us? And what's the best way to produce this for us? Because, you know, once you start having those conversations, like the assembly line, things are going to get a lot less convenient, but you're also going to see a lot more, for example, prioritization of deep work, because that's what mm-hmm. actually gives you a high return on the mm-hmm. money you're investing in human brains. Uh, we're going to see a wide diversity of communication channels. Some people are completely inaccessible. Other people do nothing but communicate. I mean, knowledge work is going to evolve. It just takes time. So that's why I'm confident that, yeah, sure, knowledge work is kind of terrible for deep work right now, but that just is going to have to shift because we're just not getting a big ROI on the human brains that we're hiring if we keep them in this state of fractured attention. I mean, just like you're not going to get away with buying a million-dollar piece of factory equipment and not oiling it and running it at 10% capacity. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I think things are going to shift. And I think the era of, you know, uh, Ben at Blinkist.com, we all have an email address. It's our name, and that's it. And and we just have an inbox that's associated with our name. And then just everything can go through this inbox. Everything can be figured out through messaging that we're going to look back at that just like the old factories and say, yeah, that was kind of dumb. I mean, makes sense. We're still trying to figure things out, but that was kind of dumb. I'm tempted to like start talking about Ariana Huffington and other people who are like, hold on, like, let's take a step back and, but, and bring it all back to like normal, everybody be smart with your time and just be healthy. Like be, you know, don't forget to sleep. Or like, don't get addicted to email. Like, still do your work. I'm tempted to go in that direction, but I I really want to go deeper into like deep work itself as a as a thing. Like specifically, how how do breaks work in deep work for you? Like in in how to become a straight A student, you write um, or you advise uh, students to to work in like one hour chunks, right? I'm a big Pomodoro technique fan. Some people find 25 minutes too short for like a focus, you know, 25 on, five minutes off. They find that like too short and they like to do, you know, 45 minutes on, five minutes off. But I'm, I'm, I I was thinking about like Rick Fuhrer, the, the blacksmith you talk about in the book. And I mean, he took breaks, right? Like there's breaks allowed in deep work. Yeah. It's, it's a good question because it's a, it's a little bit, uh, subtle. Um, so what we know from the research is if, if you want to actually maintain peak intensity of concentration on something. There are some natural limits. And the, and the very best focusers in the world, which tend to be like professional musicians, uh, because actually practicing at a professional level is a, requires peak concentration, the way they practice. So they're a great uh, study, a great subject if you want to study how long can people concentrate at sort of a peak level. And they can do maybe four hours um, in a day, and they usually in two chunks. Now, on the other hand, if you look at people who are deep work practitioners such as myself, it's not uncommon that I'll have like an eight, nine hour deep work day. So how do we, how do we reconcile these two things? Well, the reality is when you're actually uh, doing deep work, especially knowledge work, you're not maintaining deep, uh, full intensity for the entire session. You, you tend to, or at least I tend to cycle up and down. So I'll cycle up and, and really focus on something for an hour, hour and a half, and then cycle down, don't let my mind rest, and then cycle back up, cycle back down. So if, if you look at me within a day, I'm cycling up and down. The mm-hmm. key, however, uh, is in the cycle downs is to not allow context shifting. So you might focus for a Pomodoro incredibly intensively on this thing you're writing, and then maybe you step back to let your mind recharge for 10 minutes. 
that's fine so long as you don't allow your mind to switch context. So, as lo so long as you don't look at email, as long as you don't look at social media, as long as you don't look at the internet, you need to just lower the intensity, but basically keep your cognitive context the same. Uh, so, that, so what do you? So what do you do? How do you do that? Well, sometimes it's just actually reducing the the intensity, right? So, like you're trying to. I work on proofs a lot, for example. So I'm trying to see if this new technique works. I'm I'm, I'm trying it. I'm working it through. It uh, doesn't quite work. Okay, I back off. I might just summarize where I am in my mind. Okay, so where am I? Let me summarize where I am. Or maybe you you kind of zone a little bit. Let me go for a walk. Let me just, you know, let my mind see what's going on. Let me let my mind see what's going on uh, around me. Um, hmm. Or you do something physical, like, all right, let me go put my laundry downstairs or something like that. So okay. it's, it's it, you don't want to change your context. It's the breaks within knowledge work style deep work is just it's like uh taking your foot off the gas pedal you're still moving down the road but you take your foot off the gas pedal then you press it down you take it off press it down um okay. but for the whole thing to count as a deep work session so for an eight hour day to count as an eight hour deep work day for me that means there's no email in that day uh not even a glance there's you know there's no web glancing at, at the web there's uh uh, you know, no, whatever, like complete change and something that could actually shift my attention to something else that's relevant to me. Okay. But, but if I were, if I were to, let's say I'm starting my deep work, let's say you, you won me over your book, won me over. I'm starting my deep work stuff. Now I'm telling my boss or circle leads. Cause we're dealing with holacracy. Um, just a heads up, you might not hear from me on certain days, or I might cluster all my communication into certain hours um, I really want to focus on this podcast editing um, every week, and I'm, I could probably double the amount of podcasts I make if I just take, let's say, four hours of deep work every day on podcast editing. Yeah. Um, I start with, do I just jump into four hours or do I start with like one hour? If you're, if you're new to deep work, uh, you probably want to build up. You probably want to build up. Okay. So you'd start with like 90 minutes maybe. Uh, an hour to 90 minutes and what you want to see is that you're having consistent success with the sessions and success means uh, there was no distraction glance so basically to count the deep work session as successful that means there was zero glances at email zero glances at the phone right. if you make a glance it, it still might be a useful session but doesn't count as a deep work session so you, what you want to see is okay at this current length i'm comfortable keeping my attention on one thing for that current length. And, and a lot of that's cognitive training, but also a lot of it is actually testing, have you figured out how to integrate deep work properly into your, into your work schedule? So for example, if you just decided for yourself, hey, I'm going to spend four hours on Tuesday and Thursdays in the middle of the day doing podcast editing in a state of depth, like I'm just going to be focusing on it, um, you'd probably find, hey, I'm having a hard time because you didn't really tell anyone else you were doing that and you'd keep coming into circumstances where someone really does need you and so you kind of did mm -hmm. have to check email. So you'd notice like, hey, I keep failing to succeed at my deep work blocks. Well, part of the feedback you're getting there is I haven't figured out properly um, how to integrate deep work into my professional life. I mean, there, I, if you keep coming mm -hmm. to situations where you need to check things or, or well, I got to come and look at this or someone's expecting something, then that's also useful feedback. That means ah, I got to work more with my team. I got to work more with my timing. I got to figure out a better way to do it. So my general rule is you get two weeks of succeeding with a current depth. You can, uh, duration, you can increase that duration until you get to whatever your target block size is. Oh, okay. That's cool. So I do two weeks at like 90 minutes and then yeah, aim after that to then do two hours or something. Yeah. I mean, 
I usually say 20 minutes per two weeks, you know? So, oh, wow. okay. uh, uh, especially if you're doing something really intense concentration. Now, again, that's, you probably could go much faster because you're a professional and you already have some, um, experience you you have to focus on things for a living uh mm-hmm. but when i deal with college students or students who are completely fragmented and who are very very uncomfortable <laughs> with being away from mm-hmm. communication then in that worst case scenario we do the 20 minute two week rule because as for a college okay. student you know obviously starting with 40 minutes can be very difficult it can be very yeah. difficult for them to even get 40 minutes it's it's uh, like a withdrawal type symptom so just last last thing um do you think experience is also available? I mean, the, when I'm when I'm reading the book, um, I felt this like. Of course, you think experience is valuable. It's kind of rhetorical, but the but this focus on being valuable, making stuff. Um, my girlfriend was kind of telling me like, what about just like living? What can you? What about living and seeing things and being around? In her words, like, can you also deep experience something? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think I do know what you mean. I mean, there's there's this notion of just mindfulness more generally, where right, right. just being present in the moment, we know both sort of psychologically and philosophically is, is just a very rewarding state. And it's much better than having a constant sort of fragmented attention. I don't go into in a lot of detail, okay, what does that mean? Because I think this is pretty well covered in other literature what does it mean outside of work to sort of be um just present but i've certainly found that it's like a side benefit of training your ability to focus in work uh pushing this cognitive capacity to to focus intensely for long periods of time building up your comfort with not having novel stimuli and just being focused on one thing in the workplace absolutely makes that more comfortable outside mm-hmm. of the workplace. And there's also the flip as well. I mean, I have a rule in the book called Embrace Boredom. And the basic idea there is that if in the workplace, you want to be very successful at concentrating intensely and, and producing like a superstar, that this is what the true deep workers, the people who can really focus intensely, they produce like a superstar. It's not even close. I mean, it's a right. huge improvement if you really can hone your ability to focus. If you want to do that in the workplace, but every minute of time outside of the workplace is spent in a state of continuous partial attention, where at the slightest hint of boredom, the phone comes out. When you're watching a TV show and the plot gets boring, you're also looking at the tablet. You're going to struggle back at the yeah. office because you're 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 reinforcing this addiction, the stimuli. And so, you know, I also argue that you have to get much more comfortable outside of the workplace being bored. Mm-hmm. Just this is what I'm doing. Maybe there's not a lot of stimuli, and I'm bored. But I'm just going to do it. And I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm not going to get a tablet. I'm just going to be comfortable doing one thing that may or may not be uh, valuable. So embracing outside of work, a comfort with just being present with one thing at a time, even if it feels boring, has a real positive impact on your ability to focus intensely when it comes time to do so in work, just as working on your ability to focus within work is going to make that easier. So it's kind of this nice loop feedback cycle. And so if you really study the lives of people who prioritize depth with people who live what I call the deep life, you're going to see that type of mindful presence in and out of work. I mean, they just feed off each other. That's awesome. I, that, I mean, I wish you had more time. Maybe we'll do this again in uh, six months or something, because it'd also be great to go into the, the bits in the book about the, why deep work is so valuable and meaningful and how you actually get joy, how, you know, a guy spends eight hours making a sword all day 
and it gets like this insane joy out of it, you know? Yeah. I mean, th- these are the, the two big points I would emphasize is, um, one, when I'm talking about sort of this deep life, this life where you hone your ability to focus and you prioritize it in your life, it's really not about distractions being bad. It's really not about being a little bit more productive, or a little bit less frazzled. It is instead about being massively more productive. And that's, that's the point I want to keep hitting is that the people who hone this ability just produce orders of magnitude more quality than people who don't. So it's not about being a little bit more productive. It's about being massively more productive if you hone this skill. I mean, this is why I'm so surprised we don't talk about it more because it's so valuable. And then just like mm-hmm. you said, it tends to make people's life both in and outside of work much less anxious, much more satisfying, uh, and much more meaningful. I mean, if you prioritize deep work, you like your work better. So you put those two factors together and it's, it's you know, the, the economist called deep work the, the killer app of the 21st century knowledge economy. And I think that's the right way to summarize it. I mean, this is nice. not about uh, kids these days are on the Facebooks too much. It's instead right. <laughs> about, you know, how can you have like a massive trans, a massively positive transformation in your life? That's, that's the type of big thing I'm going for here. I think that's an awesome way to, to end it because if I ask something else, it'll cheapen that and not make it as cool. So let's, let's call it, but, um, thanks so much for doing this. And, um, I don't know. I, I hope we can do this again. Of course. I'd love to. Thanks, Ben. Today's Blinkist podcast was produced by me, Ben Schumann-Stoller, and Odie Constantino, who once rode the entire Mississippi River in a barrel with his cat, Levi. Feel free to email me at podcast at Blinkist.com if there's someone you want to hear, or if you have any feedback about me, the podcast, or the Blinkist magazine, what you ate for breakfast. It's all good. Feel free to share. We'll be back in a few weeks with the next interview. In the meantime, be good. This is Ben checking out. Bye-bye. <laughs>